0: Well, good morning and welcome again to South Lansing Christian Church. I'm so glad you're joining us today. Glad that you're along for this journey that we're taking through the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament and looking at the fallout of humans' first decision to sin all the way back in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. And so we're in week four this week and and we've been on a journey together looking at these commandments and talking about fallout is just something you can't talk about without at least referencing nuclear technology. And so I'm not talking about Barbenheimer today, and I'm not talking about the backlash against Barbenheimer today. What I am talking about is a uh, a power plant, a situation in which uh, you might be familiar with. It happened back in 2011. But way back before then, in 1967, Uh, Government specialists, scientists, technology engineers, all these people came together and began construction on what would become a state-of-the-art nuclear power plant. It was going to have six reactors. It was going to have all of uh, these fail-safes and backups. It had generators and DC batteries in case the power went out. It had switching stations. It had an earthquake protection plan in case an earthquake ever happened. It, even it was on the coast and so there was a seawall and, uh, and the seawall was designed to keep the plant from flooding. And, and so there were redundancies after redundancies. This was going to be the safest plant yet constructed. There was just one tiny little problem, though, and that was, in the construction plan, the, the backup generators were placed in the basement of this plant, and that created a little bit of a flood risk, which was noted by the International Atomic Energy Agency, and they, they pointed that out. Nobody really paid much attention to it, and eventually, as the plant was, was upgraded, generators were placed up on the hill, keeping them out of the flood zone. Problem solved. There was just one tiny little problem still. That problem was the switching station was still in the basement. And so while the generators and the batteries were safe from water, in the event of a flood and power loss, the whole station designed to switch over, to fail over to those generators, would be submerged. That was a bit of a problem, just a tiny one. The plant continued to to produce power for another 20 or so years until... March 11, 2011, the most powerful earthquake to ever have hit the coast of Japan rocked the Fukushima plant and inundated the plant with a 46-foot-tall tsunami, which is, you know, a little taller than the ceiling in here. Over the next few days, there were three nuclear core reactor meltdowns, and 154,000 people had to evacuate that area. That's more than the city of Lansing's uh, population. To this day, it's the second most severe nuclear catastrophe, uh, like non, non military nuclear catastrophe, to have ever hit our planet. All of those tiny little problems, they added up to one really big problem. And you know, that seems to be the way that life goes. Often it's the small things, the overlooked things that add up into one really big situation to figure out. And that seems to be the way that humanity has, uh, has been dealing with life ever since the fall. One small choice to sin, to step into sin, has caused so much drama and so much relational fallout ever since. You know, it's those little things that have the biggest impact. It's checking the mirror after you eat your lunch because you might have pearly whites in there, but if there's just one little speck that's enough to command your coworkers' attention, your classmates will point that out to you. It's putting the pin in your trailer hitch before you take off down the road. Something so small keeps everything connected together so that when you're careening down the road at 70 miles an hour, it all stays there. It's, you know, it's, it's this, it's, it's the key. It's the key to your house. Something so small gives you a lot of confidence when you step in through the front door and it's 10 o'clock at night. Often it's these small things, these seemingly inconsequential that are so essential. And today's, today's commandment from Exodus 20 is just like that. It's one of these commandments that's it's pretty short. It's only four words in our translation today. It's the fewest of any of the letters of any of the commandments. Uh, it's, it's only two words in Hebrew and it might be something that you don't think you deal with. It, it might be something that you think is short and easy to check off the list and so we can go about our day, right? This, command, this commandment, it's not even referenced as many as, like, as many times as the, the Hall of Fame sins, like lying or adultery or, or, you know, idolatry. These things are mentioned over and over again in the Old Testament and the New. And yet today, commandment 8 has a great deal of importance for us. It's a a sin that we all, whether we recognize it or not, deal with on a regular basis. Scripture tells us in Jeremiah 17, we've talked about this a few times, that the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. And then Jesus, he intensifies that a little bit more in the New Testament, as he does. And he says this in Mark 7, 21 through 22. He says, Out of a person's heart come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, Theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. And so even when we think we are, are innocent, even when we appear innocent on the outside to others, often it's our hearts that betray us and lead us into sin. So join me in Exodus chapter 20. We'll start in verse 1 today. Exodus 20 verse 1. Then God gave the people all of these instructions. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, from the place of your slavery. Now this is week four, and we've read these two verses many times, but, but week four is uh, is a point in which we need to stop and talk about these verses yet again. And that's because as God gives the Ten Commandments to his people, he reminds them of just who he is and who they are. God is, is the Lord God. He's the, the creator, sustainer of all things. And he just so happens to have rescued these people from Egypt, from the land of slavery. And it's, his rescue is, is, is in fulfillment of a promise he'd made to their ancestor Abraham. And now here in Exodus, God was bringing these people out of Egypt. He had brought them. Now they're gathered at Mount Sinai. And, and these are his people, not because of anything they had done, But these are his people because he had chosen them out of all the peoples of the entire world to be his chosen nation, a light to the world, an example to others of what it looks like to follow God. But it all started with God's choice, with God's choice to offer grace. and We talked about that too, grace, undeserved favor to a people who, as we'll see when we read Genesis through Deuteronomy as a church this fall, these people continually wandered away from God. They didn't deserve God's faithfulness to his covenant, but yet God continually offered them grace undeserved favor. And it's important that you realize this and that we read these first two verses as we jump into the Ten Commandments because it's particularly essential that you know that these commandments are given to people who already belong to God. They already had been rescued by God, they already had been chosen by God, and they already belonged to him. And so the Ten Commandments, they're not a critique against the nations outside of Israel. They're not some list of laws to be imposed on unbelievers. Now these are the laws, these are the rules of God's household. Have you seen those those house rules plaques, we buy them at Hobby Lobby or craft stores and they say things like, in this house we, uh, we offer forgiveness and we love one another and we eat cake and we have a great time. And, and you know, this one is particularly egregious. It says, we giggle. I, I don't, I, I would not hang that one up in my house. Yeah. <laughs> we pick these things up and we put them on our wall because they inspire us or they say something about our values. Well, the Ten Commandments for the Israelites are that and so much more. These are the house rules of God's family intended to describe just what it looked like to follow God faithfully. Because you are an Israelite, a member of God's household, you will do these things. And because you are an Israelite, a member of God's household, you won't do some of these other things. So let's jump ahead to verse 15 because we've talked through the other seven commandments up to this point in this series. And we're jumping into verse 15, the key text for us today. Here it is. You must not steal. I'm going to read that again because it was real long and hard to understand. <laughs> you must not steal. All right, short, sweet. I think when I look around this room, I, I don't assume that many of you guys are, are thieves. and So maybe this is an easy one to check off our list again. I, I don't know. I mean, I think it might not be as simple as that. Because the key to to living out the intention of the Ten Commandments is recognizing the ways in which our hearts are drawn towards sin. You know, Christians throughout the the centuries have thought about this commandment and, and many others. And Martin Luther, one of the reformers, he said this. He said, when it comes to theft, he said, if we look at mankind and all its conditions, it's nothing but a vast, wide, stable full of great thieves. In his opinion, theft was the most prevalent of all, all sins. And yet, I, I, I wonder, how, how can that possibly be? Because when's the last time you stole a TV from Best Buy? Was it last week or last month? How about when you were out with your friends on a Friday night? Did you throw in a little grand theft auto? I'm not talking the video game. I mean, no gathering of friends is, is, uh, is complete without... A little petty larceny or breaking a law or two, right? I mean, this is ridiculous. We, we look around and, and we think, this is not us. We're, we're not these thieves. Most of us consider ourselves to be pretty good people. And you all as pretty good people, well, pretty good people don't steal. We're not thieves. And we look at ourselves and we think smugly because we haven't stolen that that we haven't taken any big-ticket items, no jewelry heists here, nobody's wallet has ended up in our possession, well, then this commandment is an easy one to fulfill. And yet, just like fallout from a, a natural disaster clouds our perspective and causes us to have trouble seeing the truth, seeing what's around us, fallout from the first human sin and the continual sin that humans fall into clouds our perspective, And we don't see the sin that's lurking in our own hearts. And I believe this to be true: that theft theft begins in your heart. Now, this morning we could talk about the ways in which God's people do struggle with this sin. We talk about, I don't know, things like over-reporting your work hours on your timesheet. We could talk about under under undercompensating your employees if you're an employer. You know, we could go into cheating in some way on your taxes or not paying the right fees and, and uh, things for, for other areas in society, finding ways to skirt the law. We could talk about, since we've got students here and it's almost a new semester, we could talk about academic integrity, doing your own work, not turning in somebody else's work or some computer's work, but actually earning that degree. There aren't shortcuts there. We could, we could talk about that more. We could talk about getting something that you have no right to through uh, taking, taking credit for somebody else's work in your workplace. We could even go, go deeper and talk about the ways in which modern society takes from some people and gives to some people and how many of us are unwitting participants. And, that, and those are all, all discussions worth having, important to have. But I think the discussion we need to have today centers on selfishness. Selfishness, because at its heart, theft overvalues me. It overvalues what I want. It overvalues my desires and my wants, and it undervalues everyone else around me. If you've ever said the words, I deserve this, while feeling some jealousy or disgruntlement or some other kind of angst, then you might be treading dangerously close to attitudes, to actions of theft. Jamie and I were fans of the show Parks and Rec back in the day. It's an old show now. Hilarious. Uh, Lots of fun. In that show every year on October 13, uh, Tommy and Donna would go, and they'd have a a day that was called Treat Yourself Day. And those of you who've seen the show, you've seen this. It's hilarious. On this day, they, they go out, and they just indulge no matter what. They buy whatever they want. They eat whatever they want. They do whatever they want. It is a day to treat themselves And ever since the show aired that episode, again back in 2011, many of us in America have adopted this attitude. And it makes sense because we're busy and we're overextended and we're worn out and we just want a way to to relax and and take care of us, a little little self-care. We deserve a break. At least we tell ourselves that. And so we self-indulge. But the thing about this kind of indulgence, the thing about this this kind of taking whatever we want is, is kinda like it's kinda like feeding a fire. The more that you feed the fire, the fire doesn't get smaller. The fire flares up and continues to get bigger and bigger. And I think the more that we take, 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 the more our desires grow, and the more that we feel we deserve everything and no one can stand in our way. Turn with me to Romans thirteen. The Apostle Paul talks about some of these commandments in Romans 13, and he makes, he makes a couple striking statements. Romans 13, starting in verse 8. Owe nothing to anyone except for your obligation to love one another. If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirements of God's law. That's a striking statement right there. If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirements of God's law. That's something to to reflect on and let sink in as you leave here today. Verse 9. For the commandments say, you must not commit adultery, you must not murder, you must not steal, you must not covet. These and other such commandments are summed up in this one commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to others, and so love fulfills the requirements of God's law. I'll read that one more time. Love does no wrong to others, and so love fulfills the requirements of God's law. It's really as simple as that. Simple, not easy. And so when our hearts lead us to overvalue our wants and our desires and our positions, when we think that we deserve things and are entitled to them, we need to remind ourselves that there are no victimless crimes out there and that our tendency to just take, take, take whatever we want always has consequences for us as well as for others. And as Paul says, love does no wrong to others. You know, the biblical definition of love is, is putting another, another person's highest good above our own, and, and if that's the case, it's, it's kind of counter, countercultural because our definition of love is often follow your feelings or your gut, but again, the biblical definition of love is another person's highest good being placed above your own. Theft is, is kind of the opposite of that. It's putting your needs and your desires and your wants over everybody else's, and people have got, even if, you know, you haven't stolen a, a TV. Even if you are not engaged in acquiring things from your neighbors dishonestly, how many times a week, how many times a day are you te- tempted to make decisions that, that only benefit you? To make things, to take things, to, to do things that have as their single purpose your comfort, your desires, your so-called happiness, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we're tempted to do that all the time. Theft begins in your heart, and it's a sin of pure selfishness. And so as we, the church, as we, got, as we God's people, begin to grapple with this reality uh, of the nature of theft and God's prohibition against it, what are we supposed to do as a community of believers? Well, I think we can take two steps. Two steps. The first one is we can acknowledge that God is the source of all that we have, all of our possessions. And then we can choose to love. As to that first one, Christians hold and have held for our entire history that all that we have belongs to God. It's ultimately his. He's the creator. He's the originator. Wally leads us in this song that says, uh, the earth is yours, the earth is yours, and, and all within. We give you thanks. right? We sing that here. We recognize that God is the source of all we have, and because of that, because everything that we have is ultimately God's. We don't have the right to take from other people. We, we barely have the right to our own things. We're just stewards. Entrusted with what we have. Intended to use it to bless others. To build God's kingdom. To be generous. So we certainly don't have the right to take. We might not even have as much of a reason or a right to treat yourself as, as we think we do Sometimes. Because all of our stuff, all of our neighbor's stuff belongs to God. And so keeping, keeping this in our mind should help us keep our hearts in check. That's number one. Acknowledge God as the source of, of, of everything we have. Number two. This is the easy one, the simple one. Not so much. We choose love. As Paul says again, love does no wrong to others. And so, and so instead we seek their good. We look out for their best interest above Our own. We choose to sacrifice instead of to hoard. We choose to give instead of to take. And and so when you are tempted to take what's not yours, ask yourself, am I living in love? Am I living in love? Remembering these two things, God's ownership of our stuff, our duty to love one another is essential. Because as we go out in this broken, fallen world, these are not the values of our world. Our world is all about acquiring more and setting ourselves up for greater levels of self-importance and power and, and taking, taking, taking. That's what our world is like outside of the church. And our world needs us. It needs the people of God to come along and show them just what it looks like to serve a risen Savior, to serve a God who's righteous and just and loves and cares for his people. When we choose to follow the commandments, when we abstain from theft as well as, as from all the rest, we are showing the world just what kind of a God we serve. A God who's, who's just and loving and invites people into his community. So theft, that's theft. It might seem like a small sin, a small commandment for sure. It's short, but not insignificant might seem like something that you haven't dealt with regularly or that you don't see yourself stepping into. But the reality is when we examine our hearts, it's a sin that that plagues all of us. And it's a sin that devalues others while it seeks to prop our own sense of self-worth up by taking and being selfish and getting and acquiring more. Because theft truly begins in your heart. Hey, this morning as we, as we head into what's next, I want to remind you just one more time that the Ten Commandments are written to God's people. Household rules for people who belonged to God already, and yet they were continually pulled off into sin, away from God, going to do their own thing. They continued to deal with the fallout of Adam and Eve's decision in the garden of the sin that infects humanity, and we're the same way. We're the same way. Sin continually knocks at our door and, and, and tries to get us to take steps away from God. And we need remember, reminders like the, the Ten Commandments. We need reminders like Paul's words in Romans 13 about just who we need to be and who God is. So we have this commandment, you must not steal. And so I wonder this week, how's that going for you? Where do you find yourself overvaluing you Where do you find yourself undervaluing those around you and and what do you need to do about that? I see one of our elders heading to the back already this morning. As we move into what's next, we'll have a chance to worship and to respond and to sing together. And we would love to have a conversation with you about what God might be doing in your heart. Is God identifying, convicting you, identifying sin in your life? If so, man, we want to pray with you. We want to hold you accountable. Find us after the service, during the next part of the service, and let's have a discussion about what God is doing in your heart because theft begins in your heart. but We believe that God can redeem our hearts. Hey, people of God, would you pray with me this morning? Father, we come to you and we're thankful again to be your church here. God, we're thankful for the people in this place, the people joining us online. We're thankful that we are your church, not bound by the walls of this building, but worshiping with our brothers and sisters across the city today, across the state and around the world on a Sunday. God, we're thankful that our history goes all the way back to Moses and the Israelites and, and beyond and that since then you've been calling your people to step out of their own way, out of sin. To, to life God I pray that as we go out from this place that you would reveal to us the sins that so easily beset us the, the things that cloud our perspective the ways in which we're not measuring up and God help us to boldly examine our, our hearts our lives and to be willing to take steps towards you so Holy Spirit convict us of sin Jesus Christ, we pray that you're glorified here among us today and as we go out into the world. We pray these things in your name. Amen. We get a chance now to respond to God in worship. The way that we worship here in response, we do that a few different ways. We'll sing some songs, and as we sing some songs, we also get to respond by sharing the Lord's Supper and worshiping God that way, and we get to respond in worship by, by sharing together and being generous. So as we sing, we invite you, if you're somebody who's made Jesus the Lord of your life, to come and join us at one of the tables around the room. The Lord's Supper is set up on that, and that's the juice that reminds us that Jesus' blood was spilled for you and for me, and the bread that reminds us that his body was broken. But the Lord's Supper also reminds us that Jesus didn't stay in that grave. That instead he was, he was resurrected and that we have a future and a hope to look forward to. And so today, as we stand and as we, as we sing, I hope that you'll remember that. And that if, as Wally said, the baptistry might not be quite as warm as we'd like, but that if you feel like Jesus has been working on your heart and that God has been leading you toward this, that today is a great day. That today could be that day for you. So won't you come as we stand and sing